did. Oh. That what you needed and didn't get was right. That this hurts and it should. And that it's okay for you not to be okay. I think sometimes, like last week, you heard me say that Jesus will give us sometimes not just a touch, but an assignment. And the assignment he gave me out at IHOP was these things I do, Philippians, these things I do, forgetting what's behind. I press on toward what's ahead. I'm seeking Jesus. I'm moving forward. I'm getting my eyes off of the pain of the past and onto the hope of the future. I I said you'll be either defined by the pain of the past Or a hopeful vision of your future? My handwriting is really getting worse. Probably because Tammy said it was good, and now I'm like, I don't need to. And so I wanted to counterbalance that narrative. You might have heard me say, forget the past. It's all about the future. But here's the deal. The goal is to move forward with Jesus. But you can't move forward with Jesus denying your pain denying your loss, denying your grief. You have to deal with what has happened. That's how we move forward. That's how we move forward. Can you mute this guitar track? It's all muted? Then I don't know what the buzz is. I gave that thing 20, 30, 40 minutes to deal with. How do I find the buzz? I can't find it. When we're grieving, we don't just grieve what happened. We don't just grieve what went wrong. There are layers to this thing. When we're grieving, we, we don't just grieve what happened wrong. Like, let's just, theoretical, abusive father. You don't just grieve that your dad was an angry drunk and, and, and beat, beat you and, and, and never was there. You grieve not just what happened, but you also grieve what didn't happen. You grieve the loss of the hope that life would give you a good dad. And so there's layers to this thing. And your willingness to enter the grief is actually reopening you to hope. Your willingness to enter the grief and value the thing that was precious is enabling you now to allow yourself to value what's precious in your life currently. Your capacity to enter the sadness is your capacity to enter gratitude. Your capacity to enter the hurt is your capacity to reawaken hope for the future. They're one and the same. They're related. Your unwillingness to face what happened is going to create the kind of walls around you that will make an unwillingness to fully live now in the present. So as I'm saying last week, let's press on. And then this week I'm saying, let's deal with what happened in the past. I'm not, contra- I'm not, well, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. I'm filling out the picture and making it more three-dimensional. That this is us moving forward. This is us saying, not only will I feel this current grief, but I'm going to also now begin to invite healing into these unhealed wounds that are being triggered, flushed, coming to the surface. Most of us have not gotten what we wanted out of life. And if we had everyone in the room say what, what we wanted versus what we got, every single one of us will have, even if you're young, every single one of us is going to have a story 
that involves some loss. It's universal. And so even though the mindset many of us get get leads us to a why me mindset, once we've talked to hundreds of people, I, I think the logical question is not why me? It's why not me? The strange thing that happens if you're blessed with a job that gets you close to mortality is it places your life in perspective. I doubt hospice, uh, hospice caregivers are, well, they wouldn't be good at their job if they went around depressed all the time, would they? But there's something about dealing constantly with end-of-life patients that gives people a perspective. I had a conversation many years ago with a friend of mine whose husband was developing early stages of Parkinson's. And it was just the most incredible conversation. She was a nurse, and she dealt with end-of-life patients all the time. And I said, you know, she was just, te- she was just teaching me things. She said, some people stay angry and bitter the whole time. They never come to a place of acceptance. They can't believe this is happening. They, they don't get to a place where they hug those dear them, near to them, where they, where they, she's like, but most people get to a place where they turn a corner and they begin to really live in a way they've never lived before. For the pat, for the just just for the last few months, they live with a. They're. They're in overtime. If these are extra minutes. They they don't they can't lay claim to. They can't say are my rights. And and you know that's the nature of existence. You didn't earn existence. the The, the crazy thing is is that we don't wake up in the morning and go, "What a freaking miracle! I'm alive." We just take it for granted. And if it's raining outside, that's stupid. But there's something about there's something about a true perspective that's available to us all the time, but people tend to get there easier when they really are aware that everything's a gift and everyone is a gift. And even these moments are a gift. And see, that's part of what healthy grieving is supposed to bring us to. If, uh, (laughs) oh boy, if someone came along in the midst of, oh man, I'm trying to think if I should give a theoretical or just leave it vague. I'm going to leave it vague. If someone came along while your friend was going through a deep season of loss, and they started to kick your friend while they were down. And they, and they would say things like, you actually deserve this. You know that? You really are unworthy of love. It's why this keeps always happening to you. It's you. It's your fault. You're really not worth keeping. That's why she left. You're, you're, you're just, you really, you know, you should have known this was coming. It always happens to you. Let me, let me get some more fun lies here for you. I wrote a paragraph of fun lies. You're a burden. You're a failure. It's really your fault. 
What were you thinking? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you jump up and get in between the bully and your friend and say, stop it. What are you doing? First off, these are lies. Everything you just said is from hell. How is it that you are so full of demons? Like, you know what I'm saying? Wouldn't that be your first reaction? And hopefully you wouldn't punch him. But if you did, I wouldn't be mad. Stop it. What are you doing? These are lies. Why would you treat them like this in the middle of this incredible pain? Don't you know that the last thing they need is harshness and judgment? Furthermore, what you've said isn't even true. But even if it had truth to it, the way you just said that is so wrong. They're in the middle of pain. They need gentleness. They need kindness. They need encouragement. They need truth. Now, interesting thing is that while you and I would intuitively defend against the bully out there if it was our friend who was being talked to that way, how many of us are willing to admit that the voices in our own head treat us that way while we're in the middle of grief? Sometimes we're meaner to ourselves in the middle of our own grief than, than we normally are. <laughs> and that's saying something. The goal is truth that makes us free. But here's the deal is there's a big difference between facts and the truth. Satan uses facts to deceive people, and Jesus spins made-up stories that set us free. Because truth is not a proposition, it's a person. So facts can be an effective tool of the enemy to keep us bound. Our unhealed wound can become the opportunity for an overlay of an interpretation of what this means to lodge in our soul based in what factually happened, but, but taking a particular experience, someone betrayed my trust, therefore, no one is trustworthy. Well, that's not right. Someone rejected me, therefore, I'm not worthy of love. I'm going to... Root something in a fact in order to deceive. And sometimes what you find, some, some, some pain that seems like it should be small is all of a sudden triggering huge, and the person thinks, you did that to me. How could you do this to me? Well, they're not relating to you. They're relating to some version of you in their mind that's taken on layers of projection. They're not seeing you, they're seeing their dad, they're seeing their spouse. They're seeing this whole other person. And they're not usually aware of that. If they were aware of that, they wouldn't believe it, right? Once you spot them, you got them. That's the rule with demons. If you spot them, you got them. 
That's why he masquerades as an angel of light. Because if you know this isn't true, you don't have to agree with it. And if you disagree with it, you disempower it. Because as we said last time, Satan's been disarmed and defeated. Disarmed at the cross, defeated in the resurrection. So he has no arms and no feet. And if he'd be in your swimming pool, his name would be Bob. So his only weapon is to lie to you, tempt you, accuse you, and discourage you using what? Lies. If you knew that truth makes free, if you knew that Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you're my learners, my disciples indeed, and then when that process is complete, you will know the truth, and the truth itself will make you free. If you knew that, if you were the enemy and you knew that, then wouldn't your main job be to distort and deceive the mind of the believer? Wouldn't your main job be to get to, to take facts and use them to sow seeds of untruth, of distrust, of low self-esteem? When God says, you're my sons and daughters, he says, yeah, right, some kids God has. And I want something more than self-esteem, as I've said. I want God's esteem of me. I don't want my own voice echoing back, telling me who I am. I want to hear and I want to see what Jesus is really saying. I'm standing in front of the whiteboard. Trying to think, okay, let's put another sentence up on here. I was thinking, what do I want to put on this board here before I stop talking? Uh, We don't heal what we won't feel. I mean, some of us are just too terrified of our own pain to face it. But this is the weird thing. Jesus will often meet us in places of comfort and safety and forgiveness and acceptance. And then we think when we feel that comfort, when we feel that love, when we feel that peace, when we feel his presence, we're at that conference, the music is right, the spirit of God is in the house. Whoosh. Ah, I'm finally all better. And we go home thinking that we're all better. But Jesus didn't heal us in that moment necessarily. He brought us to a place where we could experience him so that we would learn to trust him so that when he says, now will you follow me over here into this dark place and feel these things that you don't want to feel and face these things you don't want to admit and unmask some lies that actually you're holding on to because you're terrified of love. You're terrified of light. You're terrified of truth because you're afraid that the truth is that you really are unworthy of love. You know how scary sozos are for me? I do them against my own will. The person says, why don't you ask the father how he sees you? And I go, are you nuts? What if he's disappointed? I'd rather just go work my butt off. Hope for the best. But the person sitting across from me looks me in the face and smiles and says, well, let's just see what he says. And then they sit there silently while something is going on, they hope, over on my side of the, side of the, of the chair. It's amazing how much we run from God in order to run from ourselves. And like I said, you know, well, I guess you weren't there. Like many of you. Like I said, relating to the parable of the lost sons, Luke 15. Religion and rebellion are both ways of avoiding God. 
Serving God, getting busy serving God can be a way of avoiding God in order to avoid yourself. Because to encounter God means to go into the true place in your heart and become unveiled before the Lord who sees everything. You cannot genuinely seek the Lord without also becoming unveiled. You go through you to reach him. So when you are unwilling to face you, religion is an interesting way to both avoid God and yourself. Because to genuinely encounter him, you go through you. And sometimes you're not avoiding God because you're not in love with God. You sometimes avoid God because you don't want to feel your feelings. Haven't you noticed that in those intense times of worship, the stuff that's down in here starts to come out? I mean, I'm talking about authentic worship. This stuff starts to come out, and the next thing you know, you're like, I, I, I hadn't thought of that in years. Just recently, I was talking to someone, our, our overseer, and I told a story where I realized that a group of people had actually mocked me for some precious thing the Lord did in my life. And I was being such a tough guy when they did it that I laughed and joined in in such a way. Yeah, and I just made another joke too. Did not admit that it was profoundly unhealthy and they should never have said those things. But in my conversation with Richard Showalter, all of a sudden I found myself crying and saying, that was wrong. I just didn't want to view them that way. How are we doing? I'll take that as a great. Do you trust me? No, I'll take that as a yes. I want to finish with some scriptures real quick that sort of highlight some of what I've tried to talk about. Just, just let this wash over you. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. Because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Listen, I see you're weighed down because the, because the things you're thinking. See, the yoke of a rabbi is the operating system of a rabbi. If you follow this rabbi, it's this set of beliefs and behaviors you're saying you're going to take on and follow. And Jesus is saying, if you take my operating system on, my set of beliefs and feelings, it's going to change everything for you. I can see that your way of thinking and believing about your life. That's why I had us singing what what we were singing, that my life is telling your story. It was us saying, you know what? My life's telling your story, God. It's not telling the story that I've been fabricating for myself. You know how many times Jesus has said to me, Tim, the story heaven is telling about your life is way different than the story you're telling yourself. And then I say, I want to know that story because this one's not good. (laughs) I don't mean this life I'm living. I mean the story in my mind about the life I'm living. What is the story you're, you know? Remember when Brad Jersak came and he showed us a picture of Jesus? 
And he said, what do you think Jesus is thinking? And some of us were like, he doesn't even care. Look at him. He's not even, he doesn't even have emotions. And, and after we gave our various answers, <laughs> Brad said, let me tell you why the icon painters made Jesus so calm. He's saying, I know all about it all, and I'm completely unworried. I know it. I love you. I know. He's unworried. He's unchanged. He's unmoved by it. What if, see, I think we believe this pretty strongly, don't we? That when Jesus died on the cross, we believe that his his suffering made it so that it's like we've never sinned. We believe that? We talk about his blood covering us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. But scripture has another thing to say. Not just the blood, but the body. It says that it's not just, I can't use the word just, not only is it amazingly true that the blood achieves forgiveness for us, makes it as though we've never sinned, but also by his wounds. What if the cross is so powerful? What if the resurrection and the cross are so powerful that not only can it make it as though we've never sinned, but it can make it as though we've never been sinned against? And that's not a what if, it's a truth. So Jesus' yoke will set us free. It'll, it'll, his, his yoke is going to bring us to a place of rest for our souls. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you And my final scripture of the sort of just summing up these thoughts. Listen to this one. John 10. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep out by name and leads them out. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep will follow him for they what? They know his voice. They know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. But they will flee from him for they don't know the voice of the stranger. We can come to know his voice in such a way that before the sentence is finished, we already know it's not the Lord. That before the thought is even done saying, this always happens, or whatever that, that, that story is that's using facts to spin lies, to steal the thing that God created for the purposes of Jesus. We can know his voice in such a way that while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil and he's with us and his rod and staff 
comfort us and he restores our soul. Again, change is a constant in life. Every one of us will experience changes. Many of them are unwanted. We will grieve those. That's unavoidable. Grieving and loss are unavoidable, but living with an unhealed heart is optional. You want to stand? Let's see, who's on the prayer team today? Carl and Sue, I think, maybe? Or did we change it? I don't know. Maybe we changed it. It looks like people know who's, who's supposed to come up. Great, wonderful, great job, everybody. <sighs> Let me give a benediction. I was reading in number six this week, and God said at the very, it's like verse 86 or something of number six. I'm like, that's a lot of verse numbers. But it's the very last verse of chapter six. God gave a prayer for Aaron and his sons to pronounce, or a blessing to pronounce. We understand that, right? Like, the power of life and death is in the tongue. They weren't just trying to make people feel nice for the day. It wasn't like little Hallmark cards that say, you're special and, and we like you. Uh, that that God, has, God created with a word, and he made us in his image. And so he gives the priests words, specific words he wants them to say over the people. And then he says, this is how he ends Numbers chapter 6. Whenever, it's a blank check, whenever Aaron and his sons pronounced these words over the people, I myself will bless them. <laughs> what? Yes. So guess what I did in my little cl- in my room? I put my th- hand on my own self yes. and I prayed them blessings. I said, what? Yes. God will say, I agree and I'm backing it up with power. So receive this. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Wait, I'm sorry. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give each and every one of you this week peace.